Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Equihero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making this show. However, if you can't, then please leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. Also, a massive thank you to Elle for organising our monthly reading groups and episode discussions, which you, dear listener, can join too. Just head over to our Eventbrite page. The link is in the show notes. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Today's episode is going to be about uh, different ways of recovery for people because in our society, uh, we only hear about... um, two types, right? You go to rehab and become abstinent. And that's, you know, probably the the one most common recovery story. And the other one is that you go to a 12 steps meeting and that you find your abstinence and recovery there. But those two methods, while they work for some people, they fail a lot of people. And I think it's really important that we talk to people who have had different methods to find some kind of stability that isn't necessarily abstinence-based, that isn't necessarily 12-step-based. Because that, frankly, is a huge majority, I think, of a lot of people that end up, um, you know, where moving forward through like a drug use phase in their life. Yeah, that makes sense. I read that the great triumph of the 12 steps is that 15% of people recover. So obviously there's room for other ways. Yeah. So, um, you know, would any of you like to kind of kick off and, you know, give give a background of yourself and, and kind of your experience? Well, I'm 45 now. Started smoking weed uh, in high school and uh, started drinking real heavy when I was 21. I worked in a restaurant, went through uh, about 10 years of uh, wrecking cars and DUIs, uh, going to jail and then nothing was teaching me to i tried AA, i tried AOD, i did a whole bunch of stuff and i just didn't stop drinking or doing stupid shit. and then later on i did eventually quit drinking uh, i quit driving before i quit drinking which was good for the world and then uh i started getting into harder things mostly because of uh pain issues all the car wrecks that caused a lot of damage to my body and uh with the opiate crisis when it was in it was the point where you could get uh probably 30 inch for like i don't know 12 13 dollars now they cost 60. So it doesn't make much sense to uh, to do that. So I started finding other routes. Um, long story short, I ended up um, doing fentanyl. Um, that was after uh, smoking tar and all that. Never really went the IV route, mostly because I'm not coordinated enough. But uh, I was uh, snorting and smoking it and then uh, quit for quite a long time and ended up, for various reasons, um, back on it. I've, uh, let's see, I've done like 21 revivals. I've lost anybody yet. And my, um, I try to do harm reduction stuff, help uh, give out Narcan. I'm um, working on a program that's going to give people uh, clean 
rigs and stuff like that. Trying to get funding for that and like work so I can do helpful stuff. But uh, I'm maintaining. I work. I don't do things really. To, uh, I, I used to drive more medicinally than uh, run around getting high like I used to. But uh, I mean, the fact is that you know once you've done fentanyl, you know you, nothing else is going to work for you. Uh, the tolerance takes years to go down. So if you have throughout your back or you got an injury or surgery or something like that, there's nothing else that's going to do anything. And even that, most of the time, doesn't do anything. So you just um, end up suffering. When you say revivals, what do you mean? Narcan on OD people that were close to or at death. That actually uh, resonated a lot with me. Um, I'll try and encapsulate my story quickly. Um, I came out of a violent home. My parents got divorced when I was eight. I have a sister who's two years older than I am. And uh, I, we, my sister and I went to live with my mother. And uh, I got thrown out of a, a school. And my parents, at the advice of a child psychiatrist, sent me to military school. It actually is the same military school that Trump graduated from. Whoa. in new york uh, my parents weren't rich but they spent all their money on me uh, basically they eventually both went into bankruptcy trying to deal with me and my my psychological problems and uh i got myself thrown out of military school when i was 12 and wound up in a psychiatric hospital for over a year after that and then uh, when I left the hospital, my, my parents and I couldn't decide with whom I was going to live. So they spent their last bit of money uh, sending me to a Quaker boarding school in New York. And that was like a real eye opener for me because it was it was basically a free school. Like nobody was supervising me 24 hours a day. And by then I had probably by age 11, I had started drinking and, and doing other drugs. But when I was in the Quaker school is when I started to do drugs and alcohol daily. And for me, it was just a, a method of anesthetizing myself against the pain that I felt. Um, by my, I, I quit school after that, after the ninth grade um, and got into cocaine when I was about 16 in New York when I was working in a bar, underage, working in a bar. Um, and uh, then I moved out to Colorado to be with a, a good friend of mine and really got into coke heavily. And uh, when I was 22, I realized I had tried to stop coke like many times. And I finally made the connection between alcohol and Coke that every Coke binge started with one beer. I mean, I was a daily drinker, but uh, not a, not an excessive drinker. I drank three or four beers a day probably, but it kind of hit me that if I was going to stop doing Coke, uh, I was going to have to stop drinking. So I went into AA in, in the Aspen, Colorado area. And, uh, you know, it helped me at first because it was, I could go to meetings every day. I could be with people who weren't drinking. Um, it was very supportive in that way. Um, 
And the guy I chose as my sponsor uh, turned out to be a fundamentalist Christian who belonged to a church that had sort of swallowed my best friend uh, a year or two before that. And this is like during the Reagan years, you know, the early 80s. Um, and uh, in my first six months in AA, uh, I there were like three people that I knew who committed suicide, including a young woman who had been sexually abused by her father and had been court-ordered to AA for a DUI or something. I don't remember what it was. And um, so this is not a criticism of AA for not being able to deal with people, young people who had suicidal ideation and obviously had severe mental health problems. But, but I was so shocked when she committed suicide that I spoke to my sponsor and his response was something along the lines of, as it says in the big book, there are people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And this just, hit me like a ton of bricks like the the fact that somebody could so easily be judgmental about a woman who had obviously been traumatized and and eventually decided to take her own life so uh, i stopped going to AA at that point i was sort of lost i was still not doing drugs and alcohol and uh i was still you know a strong young man uh doing construction work and I got into rock climbing and mount mountaineering with some friends that I met my I remember my first really intense rock climbing experience where we did a multi-pitch route and uh it took us like three hours when we got to the top after three pitches I realized like for the first time in my entire life I had not been you know the the internal monologue had been turned off because it required so much concentration. And that was like a real moment of awakening for me. And I started meditating after that uh, with a group of other friends that I met in the local area. But what really what really changed me uh, was political activism, you know, uh, around especially around Reagan's wars in Central America. I had a friend who was traveling to Guatemala regularly and was telling me about the massacres that were going on there. And it turned out that my sponsor's church was like actively involved in Guatemala and supporting the state and supporting the, the paramilitary and military forces that were massacring indigenous people, which really uh, hit me. But, but the real awakening for me was that um, by getting involved in this, I suddenly found a community. Uh, it was a community that I couldn't see because it was a community of people all over the world, but it was one that I felt a really strong identification with. And this kind of broke this narcissistic feedback loop that I'd been trapped in since early childhood. Mm. So um, in 1990, I moved to Guatemala. I've lived there. I've lived here ever since. Um, I've continued with various forms of activism. Uh, there's been a lot of disillusionment, uh, some cynicism, but uh, it, it's never managed to break that sense of community that I found in the mid 80s. Um, I should also say that I have a, a disability called ankylosing spondylitis, 
which is a degenerative arthritic condition that especially affects the spine. I have severe lumbar scoliosis. I've been in pain for 35 years now. And um, I got my knee replaced in 2016. I had arthroscopic surgery on my knee before that and also on my shoulder. And, uh, you know, to deal with the pain, uh, I've turned to opioids. And uh, probably if I had health insurance now, I lost my health insurance in 2018 when I lost a job where I could afford to pay for my own health insurance. If I had health insurance now, I'd probably be on a biologic, but uh, you know, that's two or $3,000 a month and I don't make even that. Basically biologics are, are um, cloned antibodies that attack whatever cytokine is destroying your body for those who have uh, autoimmune diseases like, like I do. So um, I've been managing my pain and my opioid use, um, but it's a real challenge because as, as V said, you know, tolerance builds. Uh, in my case, it doesn't take years for tolerance to go away. Every, every three to six months when I have a break in my freelance work uh, and I have no social co commitments to speak of, um, I take a two or three week break and I withdraw and I go through incredible pain and depression and suicidal ideation at times. But uh, because I've done it so many times, I know that I'm going to come out the other end eventually. And by that, after two or three weeks, my tolerance level goes way down and I can manage my pain with a much uh, smaller dose I also, I'm lucky because I'm in Guatemala. I have a sympathetic orthopedic surgeon who treats me for free now that I don't have insurance. And he uh, prescribes morphine, uh, generic morphine sulfate, which I get. It's very cheap. I think I spend about $200 a year on it. He knows that it works for me. He, he says he's glad that it works for me. It doesn't work for him. He actually has ankylosing spondylitis as well and takes a biologic, but uh, he says, you know, I'm glad that it works for you. So I'm in a very comfortable position in that respect. Morphine is controlled in Guatemala, but I get it from the one pharmacy that's allowed to, to sell it. But you can buy Vicodin in any pharmacy, but I, I don't do Vicodin because I don't want to poison myself with acetaminophen and uh, it's also, it just doesn't work now that I've been taking morphine for seven years. So that's, uh, that's sort of the general story. That's really interesting that you're knowing that you believe in something and that you are in a community that's making the world better replaces the need for drugs on a level that's destructive. That's really important. I remember uh, at the Occupy in New York City, a veteran said, this movement is the only thing that's getting me off drugs because I see people and I believe in something and there's a reason to live. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. At least it has been for me, yeah. 
I think so too. And I think it's one of the reasons that American addiction problems are out of control, whereas in other societies, which are far more socially and politically connected, the addiction problem is less. I mean, because people see that their fate is bound up with other people. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and they're connected. Because it's disconnection, I think, that is the worst. Yeah, let me let me just say that, uh, you know, I go back to the States every so often, less now because of my financial situation. Last time I was there was a year and a half ago. But, but uh, I mean, Guatemala is not a paradise. It's a third world country that went through a 35-year civil war with 250,000 people killed and another 50,000 disappeared. But but even that even so, uh, going back to the states, I'm hit just by the level of alienation and mm. how isolated people are in front of their TVs, and it's um, it's really striking. I have a you have a question for V. Whether just any of that played a role for you as well as, as in uh, sort of politics or organizing or anything like that. So uh, I started off in politics uh, on the liberal side of things, working with Working America for the AFL-CIO. And that was kind of when I started with the pain pills a lot. Um, because in order to get through a day of canvassing with my body, it was, it was just kind of necessary. I did that for four years, up until 2009, the very beginning of 2009. And I became, you know, I was, uh, I, I was used up and tossed out and uh, you know, was unemployed. Pretty much until um, 2010, they, I got a volunteer coordinator job and then didn't make it through that. I've been uh, uh, not drinking, but uh, uh, still taking the pills. And then I had a relapse on alcohol and none. <laughs> Man, I mean, I was on a lot of Clodopin and Vicodin, and I got shitty drunk and woke up uh, with a pistol and a backpack full of pills uh, under a bridge somewhere. And then I ended up doing a bunch of like um, stays in psych wards and um, uh, ended up on disability, didn't work until last year, so like 2010 to whatever last year was, 22. Uh, but in uh, it's the Occupy movement, um, I came, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I saw what was going on in New York, and that we had a little tent in Columbus, and uh, I heard about it, I had a doctor's appointment, I went and got off the bus, and walked into a rally, and was an activist for 11 years, or 10 years, sorry, still do activism, but uh, not as much as I did. And my politics just, you know, changed. I'd always been a leftist to a certain extent. Like, I always felt like the, the liberal thing was something to work for practically, but not really where I was at. I read the manifesto when I was probably 15 or something like that. That was great. But yeah, like, I've, uh, it's been tied to political things and, and activism that's kept me motivated just to continue and um, keep going on. And my kids, I've got two kids that are amazing. And, but, when you can't do anything for them and you're just sitting there, you know, I mean, for a lot of years, I was living off 20 hours a week for cigarettes and my food stamps. So uh, I didn't feel like a parent really like that. So uh, getting back into, getting into activism and kind of other thing, you know, to occupy 10 people brought us a whole bunch of shit. So I was eating again and all that good stuff. But um, yeah, and then uh, um, I just got more and more active um, in Columbus with all of that and eventually, um, um, some things happened. I stepped back a little bit from being on the front lines. I had kind of a security role to an extent. Uh, I'm a pretty big guy and uh, I was able to uh, de-escalate a lot of situations and otherwise 
at least be a uh without usually any physical force um just being able to uh regulate things from getting too out of hand when i stopped doing that uh like now i work for a nonprofit um that just helps people we've funded mutual aid projects and social workers and it's really a cool uh um, charity thing that uh that i'm lucky to be a part of and uh, so i'm able to put money into people that are doing good work and uh, as i said i'm trying to get my own project going off the ground and and that's definitely been a force of trying to keep as opposed to like just getting fucked up i just ended up uh doing that and um and that's kind of where i'm at now it kind of keeps me grounded and i do my my maintaining medicinally um but don't go out there and try to you know get high all the time right one of the things that you both mentioned is um chronic pain and we will actually be addressing that issue in a separate issue but you know one aspect of the abstinence only culture has actually really impacted you know a lot of people who end up with chronic pain in in major ways and you know i think a lot of the public doesn't understand this concept that people could have had a chaotic um drug use issue and still be able to manage pain management as pain management that those are two very different things in some ways it's def that's definitely a really good point i also am on clodipin which is um for, i'm on a lot of psych stuff for my disability and um you know i have not abused clodipin and well when i was drinking it was automatically abused but I don't drink anymore and like I take my little clodipin at night once a day and uh they're always there and I mean I usually have extras at the end of the month so um I also manage that without a problem yeah yeah it's it's one of the the misconceptions I think a lot of people have about um drugs in general and also just you know the probably like the one drug that ends up being the most harmful which is alcohol right most people think it's heroin most people think it's meth but for a lot of people it is alcohol it is you know the the only <laughs> the one of the few legal ones that are allowed is is curiously the most harmful in many ways yeah that and cigarettes <laughs> I mean, yeah I mean, you know, it's 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 kind of a, a, a irony because I, I do still occasionally drink. I do still occasionally smoke cigarettes, you know, and and, you know, I, I always joke when, you know, I'm around some of my friends where they're just, you know, I'm just like, hey, like, I think the hardest drugs out of all of you guys, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I quit uh, smoking a year and a half after I quit drinking and uh it actually wasn't that big of a deal. I had smoked two packs a day since 12, and I was almost 25. It was New Year's Day, 1984. And uh, I was luckily, I was driving a taxi in Aspen like 12 hours a night. And then, uh, so I, I was keeping myself very busy and chewing three plenty packs of gum every day. And I had like, you know, my jaw muscles were bulging like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> um, but but it's funny, the, the taxi season ends when the ski season ends, which is Easter. And uh, I suddenly found myself out of work. I had saved up like a 
big chunk of cash, but I had nothing to do. And at that point, it's not that I had the urge to smoke, but at that point, all the emotional stuff that I had stuffed with cigarettes and then with two or three months of driving a cab seven nights a week uh, started to come up. And I went through two or three months of a real emotional crisis. And um, I flew back east to visit my family. And uh, I'd had a fight with the the continental people at the counter because they wanted to they wanted me to sign a waiver because i had a backpack and so they couldn't assure that it would arrive safely because it had straps that might get caught in the belts etc and i had a big fight with the guy and finally i had to see it or else i was going to miss my flight and so uh my plan had been to fly to washington dc and then hitchhike down to north carolina and it was in march or april i guess it was in april but it was pretty cold, and I had, uh, you know, I had a t-shirt on, and I got to the airport, and my backpack like was nowhere to be found. And they gave me this form that said that I could write a letter uh, to to Continental in Houston. There wasn't even a phone number that I could call, so I went completely apeshit and almost got arrested, and uh, basically got thrown out of the airport in my t-shirt. And uh, so I was forced to buy a really expensive ticket to go to North Carolina because I wasn't going to hitchhike in the middle of April in my T-shirt. So that was kind of what quitting smoking was like for me. But I eventually started smoking again like five years later. I never got past four or five cigarettes a day. But uh, my mother was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer in 1998. And uh, when I found out about that, I quit for good i haven't had a cigarette since good for but, you uh, thanks i i did want to pick up on one thing that v said about you know it's not about getting high it's it's the same for me it's about pain management like i i would have to take industrial quantities of morphine at this point to to be able to get high like i don't get high i take you know sometimes i feel a slight effect but basically i take the majority of the morphine that I take at night so that I can sleep on both of my sides. I can't sleep on my stomach because I have obstructive sleep apnea or on my back, I should say. So it's either on my left side or my right side and my right shoulder is practically devoid of cartilage. So if I don't have some kind of painkiller before I go to bed, I I have to sleep the whole night on my left side. And then the next day when I wake up, um basically crippled for eight or 10 hours, you know, but I, I did want to pick up on that. It's, you know, at this stage of pain management, it's not about getting high. It's about being able to function. Right. It's, it's, it's one of the, I think, major lost, uh, conversation. And, you know, it's, uh, I think it's something that's deeply misunderstood in a lot of you know the the moral drug panic that happens you know the the opioid crisis has really impacted the state of pain management in this country and, and i think there were a lot of misconceptions about pain management to start out with but it it has taken on you know a whole new monstrous um quality to to the draconian policies yeah. around around pain management but that is that is one of the you know i mean especially as people get older 
um, you know, the chances that you people may require pain management increases, right? Like, you know, V has talked about his car accidents, you know, you with his your um, uh, autoimmune disorder that, you know, these are these are things that impact people. And I think, you know, having the general public understand the difference between physical tolerance and, and addiction is important in helping the public navigate these conversations. Definitely. V, did you have um, something you want to say on that? Yeah. Um, so the, the opioid crisis, as it's called, um, is I, I find it hugely offensive that a drug company came out with this Oxycontin and started this whole thing. Um, that uh so they could make some money i mean there's obviously been opioids around for a long time but um and now we've got suboxone um which you know i for for whoever is helped by any chemical i'm i'm fine with all that any i'm fine i'm like 12 step i don't anybody has that has their their way that works for them I, i want people to be healthy and happy and that's great but the fact that these drug companies are getting even more money by supposedly curing the problem they started and using something that prevents you from even being able to get high should you want to, uh, and 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 put Narcan in there, which I, I don't know scientifically how this works, but like could possibly like give you a tolerance to Narcan, and if you end up off your Suboxone and go and get some fentanyl or something, because I mean you can't in Columbus you can't find tar even uh, very often like it's so if you end up there then you OD and then if the Narcan doesn't work I've had to hit people with six Narcans um, before they came back and uh or one person um i didn't think i thought that was gonna be the first one that didn't make it um i, I don't know that he was on suboxone i don't know what that situation was he walked away after he puked and we got away from the cops so i don't really know anything about that one but uh um it, it's infuriating to me that uh I, I i would not take suboxone other than to wean off um which i'll probably be doing this spring again after the winter pain passes, but because uh, I do take tolerance breaks here and there, I don't get a lot of tolerance uh, alleviation. As he, as I can't remember who was speaking on that, but I, I don't know. It's it it just amazes me how capitalism has made it like so easy to profit legally off shit that they will stroke your ass and put you in prison. I mean, there's still people in prison for weed right now. Disaster capitalism, right? Yeah, it's, I I I. I Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm getting up. I'm gonna mute myself because I'm that that shit fucks me up. Yeah, can um, I think we should go down that avenue of exploring that stuff that you just mentioned. But I'm just wondering for the uninitiated, is there sort of an overview of all these different substances and what they're supposed to <clears throat> do? Because if, if I could, I, I feel kind of stupid. But what is Suboxone exactly? I haven't heard of it. Okay, Suboxone. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so, Suboxone is, uh, I believe it's called bup- buprenorphine or something like that. Um, but it's a, it's it's an opioid derivative synthetic that is supposed to manage cravings um, for harder opioids. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I have heard of it, just not by that name. Okay, yeah. thank Suboxone you. Suboxone is, yeah, the, the trade name. But um, it's basically, you know, it we have, as a society, we have such a reservation uh, with methadone. 
uh, Bethado has has you know its own pros and cons, but it, it is one of the more maligned. It's the it's one of the oldest, the most effective, but also the most maligned um, medically assisted treatment for substance use disorder, opiate specifically. Um, right. And so Suboxone was kind of created as a potential replacement um, for methadone in the sense that, you know, there is still a lot of concern among the community about, you know, methadone and that, you know, people are quote unquote, like using it to, you know, get high, right? Because it's still an opiate. It's a it's a it's a maintenance program versus one of the benefits or quote unquote benefits of Suboxone is that, you know, it is um, while it is an opiate derivative there, the the naloxone and it prevents people from getting high. Gotcha. Thanks. Maybe it's a sort of philosophical point, but the, the sort of moral outrage is that it something a substance that's supposed to wean you off something that it might also cause a high is sort of uh, what considered bad because <laughs> pleasure should not be had. <laughs> is, is, you know, am I going off the deep end or is that part of it? I think that is part of it. I mean, you know, the huge, huge mindset in in American anti drug culture is you know kind of you know this this basic idea that you know, people should not have um, non-authorized avenues to pleasure. And is it actually pleasure, though? Because like, you know, you're saying with the um, in terms of sort of regulating pain, you know, it's not about getting high, it's just about being normal. So presumably, even if these substances that are supposed to be bridging a gap, presumably, they're not actually, I, I don't know, do they bring any sort of pleasure? Or are they just sort of uh, sort of bringing you up to baseline i got high for the first time the other day uh in a very long time uh, i did a little more of something that turned out to be stronger than i thought it was and uh yeah i felt good i enjoy it I, I do enjoy opiates i used to enjoy them a lot and uh i had pancreatitis once after i'd been off the pain pills for a while that's kind of what brought me back in uh apart from availability was uh i had pancreatitis and the only thing that they would put in my body for two days or three days was IV dilated and uh, oh, uh and it's uh, <laughs> hard and to yeah yeah i was they, they, they tried morphine they tried more morphine and i was i was trying to tell them it was pressure not pain and that pain medicine wasn't going to work and they hit me with dilated and i was like oh yeah yeah i guess it was pain my bad and uh, <laughs> I, I i did not mind not having food or or water or uh anything i i was i was content those days I didn't mind being on cigarettes. Right. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think the question of of drug use in terms of like, you know, compulsive drug use versus, you know, other types of drug use is, is ultimately, I don't think we are a society that respects pain management, whether that is psychological, emotional, or physical. <laughs> and that's, part of why there is such a crisis fundamentally in understanding you know i mean i i have never met somebody with with years of you know working with the community where a certain type of drug use is always associated with a certain level of distress in life 
you know, whether right. it's isolation, whether it's, you know, dealing with trauma, um, something, you know, that is, you know, that people are trying to, they are trying to alleviate pain. And I think ultimately that gets, you know, misunderstood. I mean, ultimately, right? Like, you know, we have a society that's, that potentially sees anyone with a chronic illness as like potential malingerers, you know? And, and so ultimately, you know, that kind of um, distrust and uh, to a certain degree, like fear and hatred of people that are vulnerable. I have a poem that gets into that um, that uh, I wrote a little while ago. Uh, but I and uh, regarding the alcohol thing that's mentioned before, I the every single time I was arrested or wrecked a car or anything like that was alcohol related. Uh, well, well, there was one disorderly for a protest, but uh, that was the first time I'd ever been arrested sober. On as far as everything else had to do with alcohol, and uh, I definitely did that for feeling, and um, and uh, it was pain management of you know, emotional things, but uh, um, that was for feeling a certain way. I just like to jump in to because in Guatemala there's there's a culture of uh, people are very stoic about pain. And my conclusion is that compared to, say, the United States, it's that people here ha are grow up, especially poor people, which is the vast majority of people here, grow up without – they learn not to expect any kind of pain relief. And so they express pain in a different way. Um, you know, if it, in different situations, when I was working with the popular movement, uh, I would come across injured people, and uh, you know, I would see injuries that you know would make me pass out or scream or both. And uh, somebody would ask them, you know, what their level of pain was, and they would, you know, they would downplay it. They would say, eh, uh, you know, I'm okay. And I think that has a lot to do with attitudes here as well. So I've had probably five surgeries here um, in the best private hospital that there is because my insurance would cover it. And I've always had fights with the anesthesiologists who, who are used to treating people who don't complain about pain, even though they're in objectively agonizing amounts of pain. And, uh, and they think that I'm, you know, a drug seeker or whatever, but I'm looking for pain control and so that's been a problem here in in hospitals. Yeah, we're we're getting up to that point in the United States in hospitals as well. But that's that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, yeah, that's that's you know uh, another aspect of of having <clears throat> a lot of high tolerance. Oftentimes, if you you know get medical care, whether it's surgeries, emergency rooms, whatever, um, people with really high tolerance have the risk of being labeled drug seekers. And and that can cause a lot of problems for, for people in terms of um, proper medical care. Yeah, I uh, when I was living in Connecticut in the late 80s for a very short time, um, my, my back went out as it, it started to bother me in the early 80s when I was in my early 20s. And uh, I was in a state of like constant 
muscle spasm and it was just excruciating. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't walk. I couldn't do anything. So I went to a, a walk-in clinic that was nearby and uh, I saw the resident and this had happened to me once before and somebody had given me a Valium and it had worked to like relax the muscles enough to get out of the spasm. I later learned like ice and other things that, that were much more effective. But at that point, I didn't have that knowledge. So I said, uh, I, I was in this situation once before. Somebody gave me a Valium and it worked. Would you like give me a, one Valium? And the guy had me, you know, he he saw me as a total drug seeker. Um, he refused to give me anything. He told me, you know, that I should lie flat on a hard surface, which is it's a myth for the type of back pain that I have that would make things a hundred times worse. So anyway, I wound up fighting with him. I called him all kinds of different names and I stormed out of the place and right outside they had this, this metal garbage basket that was like four feet high. And uh, I was so angry that I kicked it. I kicked it over. The garbage went everywhere. People started running out of the place, like trying to chase me. And my friend was waiting for me in the car and she was kind of horrified at my behavior. But when I got to the car, I was laughing and, uh, you know, I like got in real quickly and she sped off and she said, you know, what the hell are you laughing about? And I said, I don't know what I did, but I gave myself like a chiropractic adjustment or something by accident <laughs> and, and the muscle spasm has disappeared. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I have some questions just in in regards to some stuff that was uh, brought up, but it might sort of derail things. So, Eko, I don't know if you had uh, oh, go ahead. things on point. Okay. It's interesting because in, in past episodes, um, various things have come up about alternatives for therapy that intentionally or not sort of help. Like Harriet has spoken about in the past. At one point she was attacked by somebody and it was – you know, it wasn't necessarily therapy that helped her. It was going to a self-defense class, right? And then teaching other people self-defense. And um, some people have spoken about uh, writing. I remember one guest that that was a big part of helping her with a sort of paranoid schizophrenia. Some people race cars um, to, you know, uh, get a laser-like focus. And I thought it was really interesting, uh, the, the thing about climbing what you said was a narcissistic feedback loop. I thought that was really interesting. So it's more just sort of sticking a pin in it, really. Just this idea of like uh, there are activities that you can do that can sort of, I don't know, it's change you outside how, yourself, yeah, right? Or, or, and or change how you think about yourself or how you sort of your own identity or stuff like that. I think that's all sort of really interesting. As a side to that, um, I was sort of interested in this this idea of uh, political involvement, like how that changed sort of, you, you know, identity or... Because you also mentioned sort of being disillusioned, Bob. You mentioned this bit being disillusioned in uh, some political activity and sort of how you sort of maintained energy for it, even through disillusion. So I don't know if either of you had any comments about sort of my rambling <laughs> non-question, yeah, I... but... Uh, I, I could I could comment a little. the The thing about rock climbing was that it 
I, I had been trapped in my own internal monologue my whole life. Like I really didn't know that there was an alternative to that. And my internal monologue was pretty destructive at times. And so on this one climb, it required so much concentration that that for once in my life, like I was free from my internal monologue. And that uh, taught me that it was possible to to break away from it. Uh, you know, not necessarily very easily. I couldn't spend my whole life like climbing uh, multi-pitch rock walls, but but it at least showed me that it was possible and and that being trapped in my internal monologue wasn't necessary. And so that started me on a search for other things that could lead to the same result. In terms of disillusionment, uh, it's, I'd say, inevitable that, I mean, I approached activism in the mid-80s very idealistically with some very, very um, fantastic uh, ideas about where it could lead. Uh, you know, I thought revolution was around the corner. Um, and then, you know, when you get to the nuts and bolts of working with people who are who have their own baggage and some people in, in Guatemala, there's a phenomena that that's been studied by a few people, which is that. Um, say compared to Chile, which also went through a military dictatorship and disappearances and murders, a lot of Chileans uh, fled. Uh, a lot of them are living in Sweden now and other parts of Europe. Um, and so they were able to conserve kind of the most idealistic uh, portion of the movement to, to continue working later, maybe under different means and different circumstances, but but they're still alive. Guatemala is is very I don't what's the word? Um, it's very it had very few connections with the outside world. The guerrilla movement here didn't spend a lot of energy uh, making connections internationally, and so. Really, the most idealistic people were killed um, in the late 70s, early 80s. The, those were the bulk of the 250,000 people that were killed or disappeared. And so when you take a movement and de you decapitate it of the most idealistic people, the, the people who are left tend to be survivors, uh, you know, opportunists tend to flourish a little more. And so by the time I got here, um, that was sort of what the movement looked like. That's not a criticism of the Guatemala movement. I think it's just something that applies universally. When you kill all the idolists, uh, who's left? And, and uh, so, so that that led to some very dis disillusioning moments uh, in my work here. Well, it, it does actually remind me of a comment that a. Um somebody that I knew made he was a young gay man in the 80s uh, a young adult uh, in his early 20s and you know he made the observation that you know the those the AIDS activists that were the most committed um, to you know because one of the major calls that uh, some of the um, 
AIDS activism was making in the 80s was for like universal health care and a lot of social expansion in, in the provisionings, you know, and, and he had made a similar comment about how the most committed had, were were died off and, and what was left were the the opportunists. V, did you have any sort of thoughts on any of that stuff? Absolutely. Um, so first off, I would say that um, I found that um, I still have some idealism, but it's definitely tempered by practicality, um, especially with the amount of criminal activity that I am either around or engaged in as a result of, uh, you know, making sure that I have medicine. I mean, that's that's capitalism. It's not corporate capitalism, which is one of the reasons I appreciate it. I would rather um, give money to a hustler that's taking care of their family than to Walmart. Um, but uh, um, I, I keep idealism alive as best I can in uh, in some ways, and uh, and then I deal. You know, I mean, there's there's the revolution's not around the corner or happening tomorrow. So let's see. Uh, one of the other questions uh, I was saying. Uh, when we're talking, he was talk, Bob was talking about uh, the rock climbing, and I think one of the things that I know I'm, I've been a writer since I was probably six. I think I wrote my first poem, and like uh, I still do poetry, but mostly I do hip hop. And uh, I mean, that's the most therapeutic thing, even though I am therapy uh, that, that I do. It, it gets the most off my chest, and is the most accurate and true representation of what's in my mind that exists. Also, uh, I found meditation. I'm not as good at it anymore. And it's kind of weird because I learned it in jail. And uh, it was to do with, uh, it was to do with uh, like the TV being on all the time and uh, the lights never going out and people talking all the time. And I just needed to get away from it. And I read some stuff on Buddhism and started, uh, I had some books dropped off for me. I was lucky enough to have that um, on different uh, meditative um, practices and uh, um, I found that counting breaths would quiet my mind and quiet I, I I could escape I felt more free at times in jail than I have out and about and uh, although I also read about 500 pages a day so uh, you know you get to go a lot of places with books too but uh, yeah I mean I, I I think that it's it's easy to lose idealism in face of uh, of what we see and what we know and what's going on, but that um, what I find is that if I have my my political and um, ideological thoughts in some kind of well constructed and uh, and uh, a thorough, if I have a thorough thought process that is is um, that is based in something that I believe and know then I can take actions that do the best I can in those situations. Um, and that'll keep my idealism alive to a certain extent, but it will also um, cause me to act in ways that do the best um, for the most people that I can. And, uh, and that is enough to help me also in a therapeutic way. Right. Yeah. The, the, the ideals uh, aren't X, excess things that you shed just to survive that they are part of the thing that drives you know survival reasons to you know stick around 
I was just thinking when you said about um, prison, there was this guy, Albert Woodfox. Um, sadly, he's passed away now, but he was in uh, prison for decades and decades. Um, I'll put links to his stuff in the show notes, but he spent a lot of time in solitary confinement as well. And um, it was through uh, books that he sort of started reading up on the sort of Black, Black Panther uh, sort of thoughts and the literacy you know the literature surrounding all that stuff and that kept him going uh he felt like he got you know an education through the the library and then i guess the ability to speak to some others as well and uh, i went yeah i went to a talk of his uh, that he did at amnesty international when he was finally freed um because i i think he was wrongly convicted as well but he was in that i think for like 40 odd years like really brutal but like he he had this whole mentality of like every time you try and break me it only makes me stronger story was uh fascinating um particularly for that sort of takeaway and particularly because his his vibe coming out of, of prison all that time and sort of being treated uh terribly was very humanistic and just you know this whole thing of like you know, if we're going to create a society that's just dog eat dog, we, you know, we might as well just go not even have a society because we can just do that in the wild. Right. So if I'm, if I had a question and all of that, <laughs> I'll probably just cut all my shit out. Um, it's, it's because we recently did an episode with some people who had been in prison for like a decade and then would um, re-entry into society and all that kind of stuff. They often talked about the boredom of, uh, prison and the boredom of jail in particular how have you how has that sort of manifested i'm wondering how you have dealt with boredom either in in prison and or just in general life because uh maybe i misheard something earlier on well so i have uh considering incarceration um i haven't been to prison i've been to the county uh jail they call it uh, it's jackson pike which is uh it's pretty poorly rated nationally. <laughs> I, I usually did about 30 days. I, I ended up as well, a whole lot of privilege involved in that. Um, cause you know, my fourth and fifth DUI, I think third, fourth and fifth DUI could have all been felonies. And I, I only ever did 30 days for, for any of them. Um, well for almost all of them actually, but, uh, so I wasn't in for quite as long, but, uh, the thing about Jackson Pike is that it's a uh, 24 hour maximum security lockdown. I mean, sometimes they'll come in and do uh rec, I usually did rec if I was there for a month, maybe once or twice um, for an hour. Uh, but other than that, I mean, you're locked up in uh, a pod with two rooms. Um, one's got bunks and a shower, a couple of toilets, and then the other's got a couple of tables and a TV. Um, it's boredom is not, there's, there's a certain amount of boredom because, you know, you're waiting you know, for food and you're waiting for, you know, you, you separate your day into the meals and into the, you know, into what's coming through the door and, uh, and all that. So it's definitely boredom involved, but um, I mean, again, the, the books, um, I mean, the annoyance would be my big issue. I mean, like I, to this day, don't like having a TV on, um, and didn't even have one in my house for three years because, uh, specifically judge shows, and uh and like jerry springer mori type shit uh which was in the morning would be on loud and it uh it made it to the point where i would be violently angry um about and i i 
I mean, I could go into the analysis of those things forever because I sat around thinking about it so much. But I didn't have really much of a problem with boredom because I had a problem with with anger, and I had a problem with I had, but I also had the positive things with books and writing and uh, and all that. Uh, and there's there's different ways. You got I, I didn't talk on the phone with people much, and I never really got visits. Um, I think my dad came once a week, uh, but like I didn't. Uh, I, when I'm in jail, I don't. Uh, I don't do much socially. I'll come out and I'll play spades or something like that here and there and uh, engage in uh, in some social stuff. But I, I mostly just kind of stick to myself and read my books and do my writing. Um, and then eventually I learned the meditation thing and, uh, you know, push-ups and exercise here and there. But mm. um, there's so much going on when you got, you know, between 18 and 28 guys um, locked up in, you know, a relatively small space um, and the lights never go out and you know everybody's got different schedules that they're on so there's never a quiet time the so boredom wasn't there was boredom but that's not my that was not one of my biggest problems right, right, right. but again only 30 days at a time you know what i mean when you if you're doing years um or if you're in solitary that's a different story um yeah being i think i think jail in prison is is a is a from you know what i've gotten out of a lot of people I've talked to is is quite a different experience but yeah it's it's one of those things where you know I'm always like you know whether it's you know Bob or V or anyone else that I meet that you know have gone through a lot um in their life and and it, it is you know I've always found it incredible that you know people do find a certain, you know, stability, regardless of, you know, the the visions that society puts out for them that they don't fit into. Because that's, a, I think that's kind of a hard place to be in. It's also the only place I've been purely sober uh, in my entire adult life. Right. Which is interesting, because it's hard to gauge, like, how much you enjoy that feeling of sobriety when you're in the place that you don't want to be. Yeah. Going about Jackson Pike, too. Yeah, uh, people in general would choose, in, in Columbus anyway, uh, would choose prison for a year over six months in Jackson Pike. Wow. Yeah, ours has gotten so bad that, uh, I mean, you should be able to drop off. I would get uh, 10 books and I could rotate them in and out, um, like like give, them a, give the deputies a bag of books that I was done with and have, you know, books to replace them. And I was doing that twice a week. And, uh, you know, you could get, uh, you know, boxers and uh, um you know, white t-shirts dropped off to you, socks and, you know, various things to make yourself more comfortable because, I mean, what they give you is a dilapidated mat, uh, a, a, a rough blanket, one sheet, a small teacup made of plastic, a plastic spoon, a shitty toothbrush with no toothpaste, and a rule book. I th I, there might be one other thing, but uh, so everything comes through commissary. And nowadays you can't drop off or, buy, or have books dropped off you have to get it all through um, through the commissary system. And I think that's run through like Amazon or something like that. So, and that only happens every two weeks. So if you get arrested uh, um, and put in a pod that say just had a commissary the night before, the only way you're getting clean drawers in, uh, in the next two weeks is to hand wash uh, in the sink, which is, you know, not really always appreciated, but uh, you actually, well, people use a trash bag and bars of soap. There's, oh, I could go on for hours about this alone, but uh, <laughs> um, 
it's a it's 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 a whole different thing. But it's one of the things that always another thing that kept me from being bored was just kind of being amazed at the creativity um, that people would take for uh, you know to get things accomplished, like uh, taking trash bags, filling them with water, and using it to lift weights. Um, you know, instead of a barbell, to use uh, you know empty milk cartons as pencil boxes, to use a nail file to sharpen a pencil because. It's obviously not a pencil sharpener. You got to wait for runners to come around and throw them under the door, and then they come and throw them back under the door. My friend who just got out of been there since 2013, I think. That was a hell of a day. It's gotten way worse since then. Uh, well, when I was there in the in the 2000s and late 90s, um, I, I didn't have a problem, but I was off into the medical ward since I was on a lot of medications. So I, I was in there with you know more uh, older guys, and then you know some people with some. Um, mental health issues that were more uh, difficult to deal with than my own, and uh, but it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't mind jail all that much. It was. It was. I wrote a comedy, a comedic uh, short story about my first couple experiences there. Like, I mean, I definitely don't enjoy it, but I'm institutionalized to a certain extent, and I have some objectivity. And uh, when I went to 2013, uh, there were almost no books around. Usually, there's a couple books you can just pick up. Somebody's somebody's left something or something like that. Um, there's a bunch of decks of cards, uh, uh, you know, a Bible, uh, many Bibles. Um, so it doesn't count among your books that you're allowed to have. That's, that's an extra one that's, that they uh, work around. Um, when I went in 2013, there were no books. There were no, there was one deck of cards. Um, almost nobody had any commissary bags sitting around. It was, it was, and I was only there for, I think, four days that time, maybe five. But it was, I mean, it was the hardest stretch I did. It was also the most interesting. I watched a guy get baptized. I watched a man wash another man's feet um, in a baptismal uh, thing. And I'm not religious in any, or spiritual in any sense of the word. And I was moved quite a bit by by seeing that um, that humility and, and love uh, um, to a relative stranger. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's not like us. It can be, but not always. Is in regards to sobriety, then, like you said, sort of being in that situation, being sober and being like, yeah, is this what, you know, <laughs> being sober is because it's not uh, all that great? Um, is, is there an element then with, say, AA, for example, uh, I can't remember the proper term, but presumably being sort of uh, sober full time. The reason that they hold that in such high regard is because it equates to stability, or is it sort of more a moral judgment? That um, I'm probably the wrong person to answer. I've had problems with the twelve step programs and never uh, never got into them. Um, but um, I, so I don't know what their perspective would be. My thoughts on on complete abstinence uh, for myself um, are that uh, I just don't have at this point. Um, a desire for that the uh the amount of trauma that i've experienced in my life and um physical and mental is to the point that if i was to allow my mind to uh to let that flow through um full time um i would not be here very long and uh and i wouldn't feel bad about it right that makes sense. I am impressed that the people of Guatemala and elsewhere, people elsewhere that I've known, 
don't think that by taking a pill, they'll get a quick fix. Americans have been so, capitalism is so evil in that it teaches you get a product, you'll be okay, rather than look in yourself, connect with other people, we need each other, we'll be okay, that it does, it is conducive to addiction. Because if you're looking for a solution in a substance, rather than in connection and empowerment with other people, you're much more likely to reach for the nearest substance. And your story impresses me because you're connected and it's a balm for your soul. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I agree. Um, I'm lucky. I'm very lucky. I'm very strange. Um, I feel like a mutant sometimes. Um, I mean, I've had uh, Narcan people who took one puff of something that I didn't get high off of. Yeah, tolerance can be incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. My connection, and well, one of the other things is that I do a lot of drugs alone because I don't always, I tend to not get along as well. I mean, I mean, drugs cause a lot of instability and a lot of bad things in people's life. And I'm well aware of that. And I never try to, you know, I'm not the type to try and get, some, especially fentanyl, Jesus. I've never offered somebody who didn't do it the chance to start for safety and like long-term reasons. But um, like, I, you know, I keep the drug part to myself as, as a, um, Missile things so that I have connections because there's so much stigma and judgment, especially. I mean, one of the substances I enjoy is is uh, hard cocaine, and uh, uh, you know, just you know, the difference between somebody doing cocaine uh, in rock form as opposed to cocaine in powder form is so highly judged that like it's ridiculous. And um, you know, I mean, that that would probably be. I I just realized I didn't mention that earlier. It's one of the things that is part of my life. Um, I mean, that'd be one, the one thing I do to kind of, I like, um, I have ADHD pretty bad. Um, and to the point where I don't get high off meth either. Um, it barely keeps me awake. I just found that cocaine is, uh, um, something that I can use periodically throughout the day. And, uh, and it, it keeps my mind in a, in a more stable place and, um, helps me out a bit, but, but because of the things that it causes in a lot of other people. You know, I, I'm not saying that in a judgmental way uh, at all. It's it's just a fact that, you know, I I have difficulty, you know, with, with, you know, being stolen from and asked for shit all the time. You know what I mean? Like, it's that. I've got a decent job and I, uh, you know, I, I do my thing and I try and be as helpful as I can. But uh, I hand out cigarettes all day and that's about it. I don't know. I just lead a very strange life and I try to keep my, uh, to keep my substance use relatively personal. Um, because it can cause people a lot of problems and, and it can cause me to be looked at in ways that are not accurate. So, um, sure. uh, I'm always I... for whatever works for a person that's cool, but, uh, for me, that's what I do. Yeah. Can I, can I ask then the same question to Bob then just about AA and, um, absence, that's the word, like, is the importance of that, um, about stability or is it about morality or what's your take uh, on it that um, it's hard to say i think it's more my experience at least which of course now goes back over 30 years because i haven't been to an AA meeting probably in 25 years but uh my impression was that it was 
at least uh, insinuated that it was a moral question. Uh, when you when you read uh, the materials that are put out by A, uh, it's it's kind of contradictory. On the one hand, you know they they're they're using the disease model, but on the other hand, it's the only disease that I know of where you have to take a moral inventory and make reparations to people that you've harmed. Like uh, imagine that with like diabetes or I don't know <laughs> my autoimmune condition, for example. It, it just yeah, I mean, that's not to say that I haven't harmed people and owe them reparations, but as as an intrinsic part of a program for rehabilitation, it strikes me as as kind of contradictory. Um, I also wanted to add one thing that V had said about the stigma of powdered cocaine versus rock. I don't know how it is now in the United States, but I remember it was kind of a scandal 20 or 30 years ago that that white people that were caught with, you know, a few grams of powder cocaine were getting like, you know, suspended sentences and black people that were caught with rock, you know, with like a couple of small rocks were getting 10 or 20 year sentences. So there is really a huge uh, stigma that's, that's basically racist, you know, and it's part, I think of a, uh, uh, an overall attempt to control people and to divide and conquer them and and put them into different categories of judgment. For me, by the way, uh, I decided that I needed to get off cocaine because it was it was leaving me broke. I was doing really hard construction work. I was making about three hundred fifty dollars a week, and by I would get paid on Friday, and by Saturday morning I was broke or had $20 left to get through the week. I was already living in a tent, so I didn't have to worry about paying rent. But, uh, you know, where was I going to get food from was a big question. So that was my primary motivation for for getting off cocaine back in 1982. I, I also think that the history of crackdown on drugs in the United States has a lot to do with J. Edgar Hoover, who felt the drugs were related to black people and that black people were the problem in the United States. They were related to the music that and clubs that J. Edgar Hoover thought were sinful and that it was a very racist push to begin with also, it is curious, I mean, there's a lot of um, data about drugs being introduced after the riots in order to get black people hooked and not militant. And there is some proof of that, drugs brought in and the drug and uh, arms trade between Nicaragua and the United States fueling the Contras with drug feeds. So it's all tied up with, you know, racism and imperialism in the United States. And it boils down to that crack cocaine, cheaper, bad, powdered cocaine, entertainment, not so bad. You know, it's it's really implicated in that whole disgusting yeah, mess. I, I, was, I was living in Aspen or near Aspen uh during the late 70s and early 80s and aspen was kind of like the epicenter of cocaine use in, in the united states uh primarily there were a lot of rich people obviously and, and stars that had summer homes there or winter homes or whatever and uh so 
Act never really took off while I was there. That was a phenomena that that came later. But I remember I did live in North Philly, North Philadelphia for about a year, 1987, 1988. And it was just decimating the community there. Uh, it was incredible. I, I, uh, I was living and working in a intentional community that, uh, you know, tried to do good for poor people in whatever way. And I walked out of our, our house one day and a black woman who was probably like 16 years old, who lived, who lived in the neighborhood, um, basically offered me a blowjob for $5. And I, I honestly didn't even understand what she was saying at first. Um, it, it came out of nowhere. And then, so I gave her $5, which was what actually we, uh, we paid ourselves a week. Everyone had $5 to, to spend on whatever they wanted. And, uh, but it was like a real shock. And there were shootings like every night within a block or two blocks away from where we lived. So I really got to see what the the damage was done, and and yeah, I'm sort of familiar with what uh, the Reagan administration did with the Contras, and basically let them move Colombian cocaine into the United States in order to fund themselves. It's pretty well documented. Yeah, yeah it is, and also I'm old enough to have lived before the drugs started flooding in, and in New York City, where I lived as a really little girl. Everybody kept their doors open. There was much more of a sense of community because I was really a little kid and would go and visit all the people in my apartment building. But it changed when drugs flooded. And I think that it did disrupt the solidarity and unity of the black community as well as the white community. So that if it was politically motivated, it worked. People started distrusting each other yeah, and locking definitely. their doors. Wow, that's a real age marker uh, because I lived in New York up until the mid '70s, and we definitely didn't leave our doors unlocked. <laughs> no, I mean I I'm 80 years old, and when I was a little girl, me and my sister, you know, would visit everybody in the building who who wanted a visitor, and it was okay, and nobody's doors were locked. That changed with the drug influx when you were robbed. And so that it did disrupt the sense of continuity, community, and unity in people. And I think it was designed to do that as a um, an antidote yeah, to political and, organizing. And it, and it worked. And, it, and if it wasn't designed that, specifically for that, uh, they discovered very quickly that it worked and therefore Let's continue it. And I think J. Edgar Hoover is just a symbol of the psychosis in the the U.S. law enforcement community, the fact that he was allowed to stay on for so long. Obviously, he had dirt on any number of politicians, you know, so. Yeah, and his racism was so pervasive. But, you know, there is no building now, I don't think, where – a five-year-old can just go visit and feel okay because she's in the building. And it was okay that there has been, I think, and who knows when it'll be unearthed even more than J. Edgar Hoover's stuff, his intense racism and his feeling that drugs were a scourge 
by black people that came from their music haunts, which were bad. But that eventually it'll probably be unearthed the drugging of the population as a way of pacifying a population. And that's a terrible, terrible thing. And so in a way, it's then even more understandable that the antidote would be solidarity and political organizing. Yeah. Just what they didn't intend. Uh, I mean, I think... Go on, Nico, sorry. Oh, no. I mean, ultimately, you know, you have one aspect of, I think, a lot of what gets missed in a lot of like kind of historical views of of drugs and drug use in American culture is is you know the fact that like a huge swath of American population has always been under distress uh whether you know and so like I mean a huge part of the temperance movement was you know because I mean alcohol does you know greatly disrupt lives and and um, and so, you know, some of there, there is some well-meaning aspect to, you know, or at least intentionally, I think some people, not everyone, um, mean well in terms of their promotion of abstinence and sobriety. But, you know, one thing that always ends up happening is one, the stigmatization and the blaming of the suffering. Right. You know, because ultimately, yes, like, that's right. You know, again, I, I you know, whether it's it's me or whether it's, you know, some of my friends, like, you know, a lot of it was never about, you know, uh, uh, it, it's one of the things that's often kind of like really misunderstood, I think, by a lot of people. But, you know, I've met so many people where, you know, the use of drugs was an attempt to gain stability. It wasn't just escape. Right. And I, I think that that comes back to to what my sponsor said in the face of a 20 a year old woman who had been sexually abused by her father, court ordered to AA, spent about five or six months there and then committed suicide. And his response was, you know, there are some people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And that that just encapsulated the, the basic judgmental nature of AA, um, it, which people, you know, a lot of people go into AA, they don't have that, but it's, it's such a cult-like atmosphere that they, they pick it up. It's, you know, they see the cues, they hear the cues, they feel the cues. And basically everyone picks up that kind of attitude and, and reproduces it. And, uh, I had an argument with somebody on Facebook once when I said that I thought the AA was a basically an authoritarian cult, and uh, my interlocutor was an AA member who was very supportive of AA, and he said, "Well, if it's an authoritarian cult, where's the where's the you know authority figure that everyone's looking up to?" Which was an interesting question, and the way I answered it was, and it just came to me in the moment, was that. People internalize this this idea of a higher power, uh, and you know their higher power is probably an interjection of the worst authority figure that they've had in their lives. You know, like whether it's a violent father or whatever, and uh, that's something that needs to be explored. You know, and and just isn't. 
Well, I think you know, a huge part of why, you know, certain treatment methods or certain uh, support methods get a lot of traction in our society is because it fundamentally doesn't counter the narratives that's present in our society, right? You know, it doesn't, you know, uh, one aspect of, you know, whenever people are, you know, experiencing, you know, serious drug issues you know the the question is is rare is often like what's wrong with you rather than like what happened to you exactly exactly i think that the 12 step program with the exception of you know putting in a higher power of people's solidarity should be applied to the nation as a whole that needs a serious moral inventory of slaughtering the native americans and then enslaving black people and exploiting people for money but that isn't you know they are seriously apolitical and they are a refuge from a family system which is really isolating the idea that two people who get knocked up could take care of an utterly vulnerable person is bizarre and doesn't happen very often and it's kind of totally repressed in the United States, that questioning. So it, it is, a, just as you say, what happened to you? Which usually starts happening very young. And you'd think you might question the institution that's so isolated. Even in other countries like France, if a kid is abused, the social workers assigned for five years, and you start being in a group all the time. Even when you're a little kid, universal public quality education starts at three and you're with that same group. But, you know, people are isolated in terrible situations. And therefore, that has to be questioned as a group and say, wait a minute, we need to change this and support kids in different ways, as well as adolescents and grown-ups. It's this kind of trying to privatize and keep the mythology of the Holy Family as if it were sacrosanct when every evidence shows it's not and where every other Western industrialized society has quality, public, child care, after school care, summer care, medical care to look out for kids. It's really bizarre. Yeah, I, I agree. Sorry for the No. I mean, uh, well, ultimately, you know, one aspect of of our society is that, you know, we we almost require the stigmatized and the marginalized in, in our society, right, of, of trying to um, that, you know, people don't question the presence of, of these things in our society and, and just accept this as an acceptable condition. To, and that, you know, again, like there's something wrong with these people rather than like, you know, why are so many people being failed constantly? Uh, you know, I, you know, and that's one of the aspects of like, you know, some of the glacial lack of progress in, in drug treatment oftentimes is again, because, you know, people are so busy blaming people rather than like, you know, how is these treatment infrastructures like grossly failing people 
you know, at the in sometimes, you know, if failure is all you have, then then you've actually still come out, you know, relatively unscathed. Um, because there, you know, our our drug treatment infrastructure, which you know, we'll probably go into on a different episode, but you know, it actively exploits a lot of people and harms a lot of people. Yeah, it fits into the capitalist yeah. system and tries to make money. Yeah, no. It's a, it's a huge story. industry now, right? Oh, it's a huge, it's a huge money making. Absolutely, and rehab is. And once affordable care went in, all sorts of utterly unqualified profit seekers went into treatment programs to start and to operate. You know, and it's also just one of those things where we have such a narrow view of, you know, what quote unquote, you know, somebody that is recovered is, right? That I think, you know, some of the most impressive people that I've met aren't necessarily ones that are abstinent, but ones that have gone through so much that still carry on. You know, regardless, like, you know, I mean, with V, like, I'm always impressed by people who do, you know, who do a lot of time and service with um, overdose re reversals, because that's a that's that's a tough thing to do that. I think that requires a lot of, um, you know, love and faith for for people. And belief in doing it together. You know, I, I'm impressed that last night I saw on uh, my computer that a million people were in the streets of Paris because they, Macron, the president who is a sort of elitist and unpopular president, wants to change the retirement age for everybody from 62 to 64. There were over a million people in the, in the streets because they say, okay, this isn't an individual problem. Am I old enough? We want this for everybody. And that's the only way we'll get it. And part of it is the United States was a place where if you were white and male, you could make it in every generation. You didn't have to say, I can't do it alone. I have to do it with the mass of people. Yeah, there's a, uh, I'll put it in the show notes. I shared it on the Discord. Um, it, it's a mathematical uh, logic thing. It's got its proper, this name. It's just like you don't even... Uh, and it actually it links back to something we recorded the other week that, about the right-wing psychedelic stuff, is that luck, it just plays a huge role in uh, people's lives, more so than, you know, maybe almost anything else. And so um, <laughs> you can you don't even need uh, ec economic theories to some degree. <laughs> it's just fucking random. <laughs> so, like, the, this thing of, like, you know, you, there was a period in time where you could make it. It's true that, you know, certain countries, depending on their sort of policies, they they equalize the sort of opportunities that exist in the country and, and then there's more likelihood of being able to, you know, sustain some sort of quality of life or whatever. That's true. And obviously, certain countries really suck at that. And the, and the US obviously had its period where there was a brief moment in time where um felt like you said for 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 the whites they could <laughs> you know have the house and the and the car and the stable job or whatever it was 120 years it was really from um the 1850s until 1970 or something that if you were white and male or in a family headed by a male every generation could do a little better than the last and that ended in the 1970s. 
So that's a long time and people got used to an ideology of individualism and also the population was overwhelmingly white then. It isn't now, even though we still have a lot of discrimination. So that, of course, people got used to thinking you can make it if you really try, like the song says. But then that becomes and a stick with which true. you beat yourself, right? Because if, if if everyone is if everyone is sort of encouraged to think of themselves as this one unit, and everything depends on you, and it's nothing to do with the situation that you're either born into or just find yourself in day to day, then uh, it's yeah. That's why I think the sort of the moral finger waving thing. Um, that goes along with uh, any sort of substance use seems to be just uh, the background radiation <laughs> that you then but have to deal with, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, there, there's a very uh, common, if if you are around a lot of the 12-step um, people, there there is a very well-worn phrase that likes to be used, which is, you know, change what you can, not what you cannot. Right, you know, but a lot of times, you know, that gets played out into like, you know, a kind of a, a victim blaming type of stance is is how it's often used um in 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 the context that it's often used. But you know, it's just I I think this is a society that has always been built on the backs of, of people's suffering. Um, and I think, you know, the, the drug issue in the United States has always been kind of a very easy way, I think, for society to justify that suffering and ignore mm -hmm. that suffering. Um, because again, right, the, the, the mindset has always been like, there's something wrong with these people, not that, you know, these people are in distress and, and need of, need of, you know, are, are, our time and investment and energy. And there's something wrong with the situation they're in because even going back to something we talked about earlier, I have a dear friend who was in a family where both his parents hardly spoke English and they were working all the time. And so he just moved in with this nice Puerto Rican family down the hall who he got to know and he got to speak Spanish. And once he, you know, he was very smart. He got recognized by a religious school, a yeshiva, and they gave him a scholarship. But the first day he asked questions and they sent him to the head rabbi. And the rabbi said, why are you here, Alan? And he said, you know, they said this stuff. It didn't make sense. And the rabbi hit him. So he punched the rabbi in the face and got expelled and moved in with the Puerto Ricans down the hall. But you had that choice. People didn't used to be so hemmed in in their individual household. And he grew up with the family down the hall because his father said he was a disgrace and he'd never talk to him again. Okay, I'll go live with them. There were choices for kids. And so the bad situation wasn't a lifetime trap. One of the things about being vulnerable and being a subjected population in our society has been that, like, you know, one aspect of part of the reason why I'm always passionate about 
you know, talking about different experiences and and how people gain stability, like regardless of whether they use or whether they're abstinent, um, is because ultimately, you know, one aspect of drug use is that you are kind of cast out of society, that you're considered the other, right? That, you know, and, you know, there the, the a lot of the quote unquote recovery stories that are common, you know, and, and by all means, like, you know, people that fall under, you know, the abstinence or 12 step model and have done well, I have nothing but, you know, um, I, I am happy that anyone finds any, you know, measure of, of stability and happiness in whatever methods that they choose. So it is not, I'm not, you know, against that type of recovery to be specific, but those are the only ones that are recognized. Yes. That I think that is a serious problem, right? It's because religious, sort of a religious absolutism that you have to be pure. Right. You know, and I think it's really important to see that, like, you know, there are people that have found, you know, uh, a life for themselves that doesn't follow that model, you know, because it's also a lot of people in society, right? I know tons of people, you know, that are like, oh, yeah, like I did seven stints in rehab and I still keep you know, relapsing um, or like, you know, I've been going to meetings for years and and I still keep relapsing, you know, and I think for a lot of people, they need to hear that there is life outside those models. Um, So my, since we're coming up to almost uh, two hours, my question for both Bob and V would be that like, you know, if for our listeners out there that may have struggled with success in treatment or success in peer support groups, um, what advice do you have for them? <laughs> uh, very difficult. I think, um, I don't, you know, it's it's hard to generalize about something like that, but, uh, you, know, you know, the first thing is that AA and the 12-step model has sort of a built-in self-promotion mechanism so people who get caught up in that, uh, unless they're aware of that, um, don't become aware of other possibilities, other options. But I think what Harriet has said is is key, is is finding some kind of community. You know, it could be AA for some people, but you know, it could be something else. But building connections with other people. Um, you know, uh, like like V, I keep my drug use to myself. I don't advertise it. I don't share with other people. Um, it's something between me and my my orthopedist, um, because it would alienate a lot of people, or it would you know bring up judgment, whatever. So I think that's that's something that's key. Uh, but but yeah, I think it's really important to build connections with other people to get involved with something that you believe in, something creative something that really moves you and that that's different for different people v do you have any suggestions for anyone oh did we lose it but i think that connection thing and believing in something knowing that there is you know something that is embracing and hopeful it's uh i think it was antonio gramsci said you had to have pessimism of the intellect 
optimism of the will. But I think even if you figure out that things are pretty bad and in the intellect, optimism of the heart and soul is something you get with a joint belief system with other people in hope for the world. Yeah, and and not only hope, but but taking action with other people has some kind of magical quality, I would say. Yeah, it is. I agree. That's what sustains me, certainly, activism and belief. This is a good place to end and be very grateful to Ikoi and V and everyone who part everybody who participated in this. It's really important to get that message out. Likewise. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, and Wigshaker. If you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Interpersonal. Personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.